Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It is Monday, and as I wrote in my newsletter this morning, we wake up today with another tragedy in my home state of Wisconsin, the, uh, the terrible story out of Waukesha, where uh, at least five people have been killed, uh, dozens uh, injured, as a result of, a, of an SUV driving in the middle of a parade. And you have to understand you know, how important those parades are to a small community like Waukesha, Wisconsin. Everybody kind of knows one another. It's a kind of a joyous holiday celebration uh, for something like this to happen, to have the, the dancing grannies hit. And apparently there were, were fatalities. Um, because the initial responses, the initial reports are often erroneous, I, I do think that this is one of those days where hold off on the the hot takes. I just until we have a clearer picture, and I know that may be naive that we don't do this that that we that we uh, caution um, a little bit of restraint uh, and, and it, as as this community mourns. But I I think that that's appropriate. And of course, this comes just a couple of days uh, after we're dealing with a fallout here in Southeast Wisconsin from the. From the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse, which we will talk about a little bit later. But joining me on this Monday to kick off our Thanksgiving week is our colleague, Bill Crystal. Bill, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Great to be with you as always, Charlie. I am looking forward to a short week, I have to tell you. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I am, I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving, which is always a nice a nice holiday. And um and so that'll be that'll be fun. I hope everyone has a nice one, despite various COVID precautions that we can all mostly back to normal. Do you think for most people this Thanksgiving? Oh, I, I, I think so. Whatever the government is saying, whatever these advisories, look, look, people are not going to be wearing masks at Thanksgiving dinner. Um, they are going to be, yeah, they're going to get together with their loved ones. And I think that that's totally appropriate. So oh, be a good excuse, a good excuse at Thanksgiving dinner though, to, oh, gee, the government says I shouldn't spend more than 15 minutes with all of your relatives. So I'll be just going downstairs to watch football by myself. You should, you know, for people who aren't getting along and necessarily with all their family, uh, extended families, that would be, I, I recommend that as an excuse. See, I can tell you're not from Wisconsin because no one has ever needed an excuse to go downstairs and watch football. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> hey, before we get into the, the heavy lifting, and there's a lot of heavy lifting today, including the Chinese Olympic, what happened in Kenosha. Um, and, uh, uh, our, our former colleagues at, at Fox news, uh, just had to update on, uh, British TV shows. Okay. So I have finished unforgotten, which I think the last time we spoke, I told you was outstanding. And I mentioned that and somebody said, well, you ought to check out this, uh, the series called river, which has the same actress who was the lead actress in, in Unforgotten. And, and River is just one season. It's only six episodes, and it is truly outstanding. Strongly recommended. Okay, I'm writing that down. Thank you. This is the best thing about doing these podcasts. Well, yeah. For all the wisdom that we exchange and impart to others, the, the British police recommendations are key here. Okay. It is important. And also, um, Shetland, the new season of Shetland is out, and they're dropping uh, an episode every every Tuesday night. So for those of you that are Shetland fans, that is back, and that also appears that it's is going to be excellent. I keep waiting for, uh, again, some of the shows that are, that are airing in, in, in Britain right now to be made available here. But, but right now, uh, River's one that was completely off my radar uh, screen, and it's... Uh, extremely unusual i just will say that it is extremely unusual but it it is it is worth your time okay so bill you and i are of a generation that i think will always wake up on november 22nd and remember november 22nd 1963 that we're of a generation that will remember exactly 
where we were and what we were doing when we heard about the assassination of, of John F. Kennedy in Dallas. And I think it's 58 years ago, um, but there's only, I think there's only three dates that are in this category. Correct me if you, if you think I'm missing something. December 7th, 1941, um, I, I, I think will always be remembered, uh, and 9-11, uh, 2000, 2001 and, uh, November 22nd, 1963. So we, we still remember that. I mean, did that occur to you? I, I, I keep thinking that at some point it's, it, it will fade away, but, and again, we, we are of a generation, young, younger, younger listeners, readers might not get it, but, um, I, I, I literally can picture where I was sitting that Friday afternoon when this news broke. Yeah, no, I can too. And I, I so obviously if people who are, you know, 10, 15 years younger than us, they won't remember it. And maybe for them, it therefore it just, it becomes yeah. the way Pearl Harbor is for us where yeah. everyone, but our parents remembered it. So I think maybe it takes another generation before it entirely slides away. You know, you don't really care about what your grandparents remember, I suppose, you know, as much, or you don't know as much, I guess. And But I, I've always thought those three dates, I remember saying after 9-11 that this will become the second date in my lifetime that, you know, will be a public common public memory, not just obviously the private dates one, one remembers. Mm -hmm. Other things have been candidates. I remember after the moon landing when I was in high school and, and then other things, Nixon's uh, resignation. And it was, this is a date also people will remember. I, that became a kind of a thing after the Kennedy, you know, after the Kennedy assassination on November 2nd, 63, and everyone, uh, us boomers swapping tales of being in, I remember being in fifth grade and the teacher telling us and so forth. Um, but I, I don't know, those other ones haven't quite uh, uh, assumed the same status, even though I personally yeah. kind of remember where I was when watching Nixon give his, his, his speech as he left and so forth. But, um, yeah, so, you it, know, it, I, it is, so it's also one of the, I think, greatest what ifs of history. The what if John F. Kennedy had lived, hmm. uh, I, somebody e emailed me this morning, something that they had written, uh, that, that quoted, uh, Sean Willens, the professor of history at Princeton. I'm sure you're familiar with his work and, Mm -hmm. and, and he wrote about what losing Kennedy meant for the future. And this was his theory that the Kennedy probably would not have Americanized the war in Vietnam as Robert McNamara and McGeorge Bundy on reflection have conceded after the Cuban missile crisis, he was embarked on a course to wind down the cold war and stop nuclear testing and proliferation. And, uh, Willens thought if Kennedy had been finishing his second term in 1968, <laughs> It's difficult to imagine the political resurrection of the two-time loser Richard Nixon. But with mm. Kennedy dead, Nixon won the White House by following a Southern strategy that inflamed the reaction against Johnson's Great Society programs and exploited the national divisions over Vietnam. Without Nixon's Southern strategy, it is in turn difficult to imagine the consolidation of the hardline Southern Republican conservatism that later proved um, so central to what's happened to our politics. Um, well, we don't know whether that's true or not. We don't know. We don't know what would have happened. But uh, again, that that is one of the great what ifs, what ifs of, of our history. What would have happened in Vietnam? What would have happened yeah. with Nixon? How, you know, all the things that would have changed if that one event had not taken place. And without the landslide of 64, probably a less aggressive great society, which some of our liberal friends would say we would have missed maybe some good reforms, but on the other hand, maybe less of a backlash and more of a centrist democratic tradition. I mean, Johnson did uh, break the Democratic Party, really. I mean, maybe one of the 60s would have happened anyway, so there still would have been riots at a at a Chicago convention against uh, Kennedy's friend, uh, Robert Daley, but Richard Daley, maybe yeah. Richard Daley, but um, 
you know, maybe not, right? I, I, it is a, it is a big, a big question. It, the glamour of Kennedy, of course, you know, so eclipsed the fact of Kennedy, and he maybe wasn't, hadn't been a very successful president at that point in his term, really, almost three years in. And you know, there were a lot of demerits, some some achievements too. Would the Civil Rights Act of '64 have been passed even? So, uh, right. at, least, yeah. at least as 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 comprehensive an act and as quickly as uh, relatively quickly as it as it did. So. No, it is one of the, you know, I hadn't really thought about it quite in those ways. And of course, we've had assassination attempts since. We had successful assassinations of other figures, obviously Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr. and the like. And then the attempts against Ford and Reagan, but not, I guess, am I right about this? Not a successful assassination of a really, really, really major political figure. Some terrible, you know, obviously some some killings and uh, terrible no, things have happened. Haven't. Which, you know... I- People forget how incre- how much political violence there was back yeah. in the 1960s. I mean, it was, you know, not just the riots, but the assassination of John F. Kennedy, then followed by Martin Luther King Jr., and then and then Robert Kennedy. It did feel like, you know, violence had become kind of the the background noise of our times, bombings, shootings, um, ur- urban disorders. And I think that some of us who, you know, lived through the 1960s and and, and remember that, do understand um, how quickly uh, politics can become in, inflamed, uh, but it was, it's, uh, you know. Yeah, the, other, the other side of the 60s, I would say, is those of us, we, we made it through. I mean, I used to say it's because that, you know, we have these alternate periods in American history of, uh, of real turmoil, changing tectonic plates, often accompanied by a lot of protests, but often violence. And then, you know, things settle back down. And if you, if you grow up in the period when often two decades or so, when things are reasonably settled, you don't actually realize that the preceding two decades were wildly different. And, right. And now the good news of the 60s and early 70s is we made it through. And, and so the country had, we won the Cold War, and the country had a couple of good decade, decades of economic growth and civil rights achievements and other uh, social changes that I think on the whole were for the better. And you know, so one has a slightly happy ending version of the 60s, 70s in one's head, I think, if you're our age. And you know, therefore, there can be a little bit too much confidence that the current unrest, troubles, violence, disarray uh, uh, of the political system will lead to a happy ending. I hope it does, and I think it will. But as I say, the, making it, it's probably, a, it can be a little misleading in a way to, to assume that, well, you would go through this every 30 years or every 50 years. And, and we, we survive. Kind of make it through. We make it through fine. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. See, I, let me flip that around. I don't disagree with all of that, but but also, I I can't help but think that certain things were broken and shattered in the '60s that we we didn't get back that yes. that were that were never recovered. And so, yeah. therefore, the damage of the '60s kind of like you know a ratchet. You 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 lose something, and yes, you you don't keep going, but. Um, you know, some some something is lost, and we're still paying a price for it. I may still feel we kind of have a hangover from from the sixties. Every yeah. every every everything that we have now, many of the divisions that we have. You know, I've gone back and forth on on over over, over the years, thinking that you know John F. Kennedy was overrated, um, and you know because because he was not president that long, did not accomplish that much. Uh, that it, perhaps he got too much uh, credit for being you know, one of the beautiful people, literally one of the beautiful people and all the gushing over Camelot. On the other hand, now I'm looking back on it and, and, and thinking of the president, not simply as a politician or a policymaker, but as kind of a symbol of, of the times and, uh, and, and of the nation. 
And it's hard to recapture that sort of hopefulness, that sense of renewal and youth that he represented. So, I mean, and, and that, that counts for something. It's, it's, it's not nothing that, that, that he felt so important to so many Americans. And it's hard to imagine a, a U.S. president ever having that kind of impact again. Yeah, the generational change was so startling, really. And, um, you know, from the World War II uh, leader generation, let's say the least, FDR, Truman, who inherited the presidency, and then, and then you know, framed the Cold War, and Eisenhower to the Kennedy, to the junior officers for, of World War II, which Nixon was too, right? And, and so um, it's a, it is sort of a very big change. We really haven't, I guess, in the last 20, 30 years, the change was from George H.W. Bush to Bill Clinton, uh, sort of dramatic generationally, but not really that dramatic in terms of issues, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. And then we've had what, we had three boomer presidents for eight, eight years in a row, each with eight-year terms. And then, of course, the kind of weird, and then, well, then Trump with a four-year term, who also, I guess he's even pre-boomer. Trump and yeah, Biden, if I'm not mistaken, are a tiny bit older than boomers. Is that right? No, I think so. So it's a very unnatural situation. Uh, yeah. I, I am struck by that. If 1992 to 2024, so what is that, uh, uh, 32 years will have been sort of this one generation getting older, not younger. So yeah. I mean, Biden's literally older than Clinton and older than W., and older than President Obama, right? So I mean, yeah. Biden is the and Trump. Biden is the oldest of the last five presidents. Yeah. So it's an unnatural situation. <laughs> Trump is the second oldest, and I think if I'm not wrong, or close to it. And um, you do feel like there's a generational change coming. So in that respect, maybe we are in a moment where we get a you know a couple of forty two year old somebody, nominees. Yes, or something. Somebody younger than eighty. Yes. No. I mean, <laughs> and, and what's an interesting point about that point is that if you did get a, a 42, 43 year old nominee, it would seem like this very dramatic break from the past. In fact, you know, no, it's really a, just a, a throwback to nineteen sixty. Yeah. Okay. So one last thing about about John F. Kennedy. I'm sorry to spend so much time on this, but. But Michael Beschloss, the uh, presidential historian, had a very interesting tweet this morning of, of a, a right-wing flyer that was handed out on the morning of November 22nd, 1963, the day that the assassination. It had nothing to do with the assassination. But, but it's interesting to read now and listen to the rhetoric. It, it, it's got a, a Kennedy's picture that's supposed to be like a mugshot. Wanted for treason. This man is wanted for treasonous activities against the United States, it reads. Number one, betraying the Constitution, which he swore to uphold. He is turning the sovereignty of the U.S. over to the communist-controlled United Nations. More stuff. Number two, he has been wrong, all in caps, on innumerable issues affecting the security of the U.S. United Nations, Berlin Wall, missile removal, Cuba wheat deals, test ban treaty, etc. Three, he has been lax in enforcing communist registration laws. Four, he has given support and encouragement to the communist-inspired racial riots. Hmm. Five, he has illegally invaded a sovereign state with federal troops. Six, he has consistently appointed anti-Christians to federal office, upholds the Supreme Court in its anti-Christian rulings, aliens and known communists abound in federal offices. Number seven, he has been caught in fantastic lies, all in caps, to the American people, including personal ones like his previous marriage and divorce, which I have no idea. So, anything strike you about that language? It feels like we've looped back, Bill. That totally, th yeah. This was the fringe right-wing screeds and stuff, and now it feels like it's a presidential tweet. 
Yeah, and that's the difference, isn't it? I mean, even though Goldwater had played footsie with some of those people and individual members of Congress did, obviously, and some Southern governors were horrible uh, on the race. They played the race card in pretty terrible ways. It was never dominant in a, one of our two major parties, certainly not endorsed by a former president and certainly not uh, amplified by a former president or by a kind of major news network. So in that respect, I think you could argue that's what was what was fringy paranoid conspiracy theories did some real damage in the yeah. 60s has now become uh, more mainstream not entirely dominant but m more dominant than one would like certainly in one of our two parties and not repudiated by one of the two whereas i do think everett dirksen or Jer whoever you know i can remember how yeah. like in the house or something would have said if given this pamphlet this is ludicrous you know well, I, I bring this up because, you know, we're getting some of this rhetoric out, uh, you know, out of the Kenosha verdict and Kyle Rittenhouse's acquittal, the making a hero of him to this. And it is sort of the playing around with images of violence that, you know, it's all dress up play until it becomes real. And I, I guess this sort of connects what we're talking about. I mean, if you remember the 60s when there was so much violence that was real, maybe it's been so long that that people, um, you know, on in right wing media, you know, feel comfortable just sort of playing around, treating it like it's, you know, it's just for the laughs, man, that we're talking about Kyle Rittenhouse being the hero and committing an act of political hygiene and everything. But this is a dangerous moment. It feels like a dangerous moment that we've been playing with with these images of violence and turning somebody like Kyle Rittenhouse into a hero. Yeah, I think so. I really do think so. And I do think they're a politician. There's always going to be violence in a country like ours, a massive country like ours, and a history of gun culture, for better and worse, which is going to lead to more more violence, frankly, more deaths, but I think, on net. But still, yeah. Um, yeah, for politicians to encourage it to the degree to which they are doing so, more on the right than on the left, that's, I think, the opposite of the late 60s, uh, it can really lead to... Uh, really terrible things. I mean, I think I, when I see these politicians with the, you know, with the, the, uh, rifles and these ads, uh, there's something a little sick about it, honestly. It's like a, fe it's like fetish. a fetish. Yeah, yeah it it's is. It's one yeah. thing to say I'm for the second amendment. And I think basically we have to have rather strict limits on what we, the state can prescri proscribe in terms of gun ownership and the kinds of registration and stuff. But this is a kind of fetishization and it's not, you know, target shooting, and it's not self-defense, and it's not uh, hunting. It's it's a kind of, you know, we sort of would like to to blow up our opponents. We'd sort of like to. We would to, like to kill them and maim yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, and there's been people who've said that on the right, right? I mean, on the left a little bit too, but more on the right of, you know, who basically have celebrated uh, acts of violence in that way we're going to need more of that and we need to arm ourselves and that that really uh that is what if you saw that again this is a familiar trope but it's mm -hmm. a true one i think if we saw that in a foreign country along with everything else that one sees uh these days you'd think oh man that that that's getting a little like you know the balkans in the early 90s or something well especially when you have members of the political class who are celebrating this and and it's not it, we're not talking about the right to keep and bear arms we're talking about the you know a, a young man who really you know, was behaving in a reckless, provocative way, who should not have been there, who, who I think, by the way, the, the jury probably, you know, you know, look, they may have made the right decision in terms of what the law is of self-defense. But, but, you know, remember when groups like the NRA claimed that they were all about respons uh, responsible and safe gun ownership, uh, and, and, and now they're celebrating this kind of reckless killing, you know, a 17-year-old with a, 
AR-15 in, you know, at night in, in the middle of a street, someplace he shouldn't have been. Look, there's, there's, there's two things that are going on now. I mean, just leaving aside the jury verdict, which, again, you know, was on the narrow, I think, on the narrow issue of, of, of self-defense. And I think there's been too much heavy breathing about that. But, you know, the larger context of how crazy it is that you have a 17-year-old who is completely apparently within the law walking down the street with a weapon like that. Uh, and I know that there are Second Amendment people who really hate it when I say this, but I think that's nuts. I think this whole idea of open carry as a constitutional right is nuts when it comes to this. I think there are two nutty ideas out there uh, in the gun rights world. Number one, the pe that anyone should be able to, anyone who's not a felon, should be able to carry a concealed weapon without a permit, without any lessons, without any background check whatsoever. I think that's nuts. I think having uh, teenagers or even grown men um, with weapons of war walking around the, the street openly, I also think that's nuts. But, you know. I mean, I'm with you totally. No, and one can, the Second Amendment's been there forever. I mean, literally since the Constitution was just after it was ratified. And obviously its its interpretation can differ. It can, people can rediscover, I guess, more of the original intent. But the idea that to be consistent with the Second Amendment, you have to have, yes, you say open carry of, of AR-15s is a little, I think is nuts and is not constitutionally required. And if people, but the again, the radicalization in just 20, 30 years of, one of our two major parties on this issue and on other issues, and not even stopping at a sort of, okay, it's one or two ticks, maybe different from where I would be or you would be. But this isn't one or two ticks. This is just, there's no stopping point, really. We're just embracing right. the whole thing. And we're not just embracing the right, we're fetishizing the right. We're not just fetishizing the right to bear arms, we're fetishizing the arms. And then you then you're in a slightly different place, you know? And, and then it's sort of, not just, the individual citizens who feel unsafe, and you know there are riots, of course. So one can see that. Uh, but 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 the politician should be running for office by showing off their prowess and sh shooting. Uh, it seems to me the World War II generation, which shot a heck of a lot more, you know, used a lot more munitions than people do these days, didn't actually show. John Kennedy and Richard Nixon and a lot of Barry Goldwater and George McGovern and people who saw real combat didn't see much of a need to go around waving their AR-15s in campaign ads. Well, in part because they knew what those weapons could do. Yeah. All, all right. So let's switch gears here. Uh, but I, I suppose we're on the same same topic, um, you know, of right wing media glorifying Kyle Rittenhouse, et cetera. So uh, last last night, um, our former colleagues, former colleague Steve Hayes, our longtime acquaintance, Jonah Goldberg, both of at, at the dispatch, announced that they were resigning as contributors to Fox News, uh, in particular in protest against Tucker Carlson's Patriot Purge. This is this documentary that he's not actually running on Fox News, but he's streaming it. And it implies that somehow it's the government that's going after, you know, legitimate patriots, uh, the complete revisionist history of, of January 6th. And uh, Steve and Jonah had just had enough. I mean, many years had been Fox contributors and they said, we just, this is the line and we just don't want to be part of this anymore and we are resigning. Uh, I know that you tweeted about that. Yeah, look, I think they did the right thing and I, I feel like I should welcome them uh, wholeheartedly in a bulwark world, you know, <laughs> um, of, of, of understanding really, I'm mean, not that they, they understood a lot of this before, obviously, but of, of embracing the consequences of what Fox has become and, and embracing those con consequences means severing their own relationship with it. And it wasn't easy for them, maybe a little easier for Jonah, who has always had his own 
uh, following and really built up uh, built it up out of National Review and NRO over the years, and then had a Fox contract like a lot of people on the right did, like I did for mm-hmm. ending in 2012. But you know, Steve really was a, ma- a mainstay though of Fox yeah. for mm-hmm. well, probably a decade, I would say, and you know, and he and he very close friends with some of the people there. And so for him, and he wasn't on as much anymore, and I don't think he mm-hmm. wished to go on some of the evening shows, and Brett Bear's a friend of his, so he went on Brett's show sometimes. For him to do that, I give I give them both credit. And uh, and uh, maybe, you know, maybe look, some of us broke a few years ago with all that, and, and we've been a little impatient with some of our friends who've been a little slower coming to these conclusions. But maybe the combination of what Steve and Jonah have done and some of these Republican governors speaking up and Liz Cheney, who's been terrific over the last year, uh, you know, maybe it all adds up. Uh, maybe there's a little, there are a few more cracks and a little more uh, distancing from what the what the Trumpy GOP has become. Yeah, I mean these these breaks need to take place. And I, I mean, I tweeted out, hey, this was a, this was a good move on their part, and also re-upped a piece I wrote back in May, my open letter to Paul Ryan, who's on the board of, of Fox Corporation, saying, hey, if, you know, if not now, then when you need to to stand up and. And citing what had been going on at at Fox up until now, the the embrace of uh, open racism, Tucker Carlson uh, talking about the replacement theory, the pushing of the big lie about the election, uh, and the anti anti vax disinformation, which was literally killing people. And my point to, about Ryan was: look, if if you're ever going to take a stand. Um, what are you waiting for? What other red line other than disinformation that costs lives, um, raw racism, um, and an attack on democracy? This would be the time for you to do this. Now, look, I want to make a distinction. I do think there's a big distinction between being a contributor and a member of the board of directors. So I, I am not, you know, there are people who are saying, well, you know, uh, Steve and Jonah should have done this much earlier. Fine. That's up to them. But I don't think that the the question of taking a stand on this is the same for a member of the board of directors as for a contributor. Now, I'm a contributor to MSNBC, and I do not feel responsible for what other hosts or contributors say or do. I am responsible for what I say and what I do. Uh, but I also understand that there's a breaking point that at some point the outlet becomes so toxic, such a danger. Uh, to the uh, to the, the republic that did, and just and just so distasteful that you just don't want to be part of it anymore. And I think it's probably been a really long time coming. Yeah, and, and uh, I hope Paul Ryan listens to you belatedly and yeah. uh, quits. That would be a nice Thanksgiving present from uh, from Paul Ryan after all these years of not quite standing <laughs> I, up the way some of us would have hoped. Not not holding my breath, but but I also think that the importance of what Steve and Jonah has done is. It, it it has you know put up the flag to every other contributor and every other host. How how far are they willing to go? Now I don't expect that that Brett Bayer and Chris Wallace are going to resign over over this, but there are these moments where people have to say, okay, do I want to be part of this? If there are other people that I respect who are saying, you know, goodbye to all of that. What about me? And what does it say about me that I'm willing to stay here and perhaps delude myself? into thinking that, oh, Fox will make some sort of a pivot toward rationality or something because as they realize, that is just not going to happen. You know, it might be interesting is to see what people on Fox say about this. I think I saw Tucker tweeted some kind of good riddance, you know, thing. Uh, Maybe Tucker and Laura Ingram will will exult in this uh, tonight. Will Brett Baer acknowledge the two of the contributors to his, longtime contributors to his panel, on special report, have left Fox. So will he do a little item on it? I, it'd be interesting to see. 
Uh, that is interesting to see. Okay, well, so I wanted to get your take on another story uh, involving the Chinese Olympics. And, and this really seems to be coming to a head right now. Uh, Chinese uh, tennis star uh, Peng Shui, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, um, went missing, at least or it appeared to, after she tweeted out allegations about sexual assault by a former senior member of the Chinese Communist Party. And the sports world um, rather uncharacteristically responded rather dramatically, including women's tennis. Said, look, we're willing to lose millions of dollars, but we are, you know, we're not going to be silent about all of this. The Olympic Committee is doing what the Olympic Committee always does, which is to be as as diplomatic and squishy as possible. But there are there are voices now saying we ought to boycott the Chinese Olympics or the Chinese or the Olympics should be moved out. I, what is what is your take? I, I always have mixed feelings about this because I feel like it, it does take it out on the athletes. On the other hand, I just it, it there's something deeply wrong at, at at this moment when they're behaving like this, handing the Chinese Communist Party a the, the propaganda victory that they certainly expect to get out of the Olympics being there. What do you think? Yeah, no, I'd be in favor of various forms of boycott or moving it. I would have, I was in favor of it. I think we all, we published some stuff in the bulwark about that months and months ago. And uh, that when it would have been possible still to rearrange kind of a free world Olympics, you know, perhaps for other countries uh, outside of Beijing, I suppose it's maybe a little too late for that. Um, in general, people are waking up to the character of the Chinese regime and the Chinese regime is getting much worse. And that's, good that they're waking up but unfortunately it is getting worse so people are being not just not just i mean the, the wigger you know huge groups like the wiggers and individuals like a tennis star are being persecuted in ways that wasn't quite the case 10 or 15 years ago not that it was a wonderful place and um so you know i think the threat of china the threat to political liberty threat of russia as well the fact that it's not an accident that Viktor Orban, whom the American right has decided it loves, uh, in fact, is very much uh, is pro-Russia and pro-China. And a lot of the you know, the American right isn't quite pro-China because most of it, because for almost sort of historical accidents, I think they decided, and Trump decided that you know beating beating the drums of uh, antagonism towards China would was was a winning political move, and, and it's sincere, of course, among some of them. It's interesting to see how. You know, when the rubber hits the road, how much they stick to that, and how much they go to true, true America First policies would say, "We don't care. We don't care." Right? That was literally what America First said about Germany in 1939 and 40, and even after the war began in 40, the war in Europe began. In fact, mostly after 40, that's when America First really got going. So, you know, in a funny way, the the hostility to China on the current Trumpy right in America is a little bit of an aberration and a little bit of a cuts against their America First doctrine. I guess it'll be interesting to see which turns out to be stronger with traditional American uh, abhorrence of this or an America first sense of it's not our business. But I think it more broadly, it raises, we are going to have foreign policy crises over the next year or two or three, I think. And that could be shuffled the deck politically here too. You could imagine centrist coalitions against the left and right for, you know, standing up for our, with our allies and and, and facing uh, dictators around the world. One can imagine the parties, the Republicans being so political that they would just attack Biden instead of supporting him if he did the right thing against some of our opponents and even enemies abroad, adversaries abroad. So I think it just heightens the sense that uh, for all that we're focused on COVID and the economy and domestic issues, uh, the world has not uh, uh, gone away. 
you know, and we also want to just acknowledge the some athletes are willing to speak out really, really strongly. Uh, Enos Cantor um, had a piece in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. Uh, the sports community must wake up and speak up. We need to realize the authoritarian Chinese government is not our friend. The Communist Party is a brutal dictatorship that weaponized economic power to achieve ideological and political compliance. It's good stuff. He's been great, and yeah, um, he really I've been. dealt with him a little bit just by like, email and actually one one Zoom call. Uh, he's really been been terrific. And again, what, why does he have this sort of real sensitivity to and alarm at authoritarianism? Because he's been the victim of attempts by the Erdogan government in Turkey to uh, restrain his freedom of speech, and I think he can't go back there really now because uh, he's been such a dissident. So it reminds one that it's a little over simple to say that you know uh, freedom in one place is freedom everywhere and, and so forth. I can't remember what we used to say during the Cold War: freedom's indivisible. It's not quite true. Of course, you could have you know free countries and unfree countries, but the degree to which the authoritarians are all kind of on one side, and those who believe in liberal democracy on the other side is really striking. And I think that has implications here at home as well as abroad. I was talking with someone from Europe on a Saturday. I happened to be in Washington at a, at a friend's apartment, now that we're socializing again somewhat. And uh, she said that um, it's terrible in, in her, well, let's say which country, but you know, in her major country of, of Europe, that it's just the young people she teaches, she's a professor, don't really see America as, you know, standing for freedom, maybe standing for a little uh, more freedom than their own country yeah. stood for in Europe and has that, you know, we have that history and, uh, you know, something to be to be, be admired or if you're on the left or far right criticized, but the whole distinctiveness of America, the exceptionalism, as we say, uh, has faded so much because of uh, Trump, especially, I suppose. No, so, I, I'm picking up the same sort of reaction. Okay, so you and I are speaking on Monday morning. And and I know that the news cycle moves fast, but um, it was just one business day ago on Friday morning that the House of Representatives passed the Build Back Better bill after the all-night quasi-weird filibuster by Kevin McCarthy. So I'm interested in getting your, your, your take on both the politics and the substance of that reconciliation bill. I think the substance is very mixed, and uh, there's a case for some of the provisions, but we are in an inflationary environment, and Senator Manchin's not wrong when he says that throwing money that isn't really paid for by other uh, inc inc you know, tax increases or cutting other programs, God forbid, something people don't even mention anymore, um, you know, throwing money at it is somewhat inflationary and, and, and not prudent at this moment. But, you know, when was the actual bipartisan infrastructure bill signed? That was the beginning of last week? I'm now at so long so that was literally now. a week ago. That <laughs> seems like that was months ago, too. And, and and politically here, I think we're at the problem, which is they got a yeah. pretty good, they got a hard infrastructure bill, physical infrastructure bill, which, again, well, I'm sure there's a ton of waste in it and stuff. But that's a little more intelligible to people and little, it was bipartisan, literally, in the Senate and somewhat in the House. And, and you know, people sort of understand, yes, the federal government, Try pay you know once every generation or two, federal government makes an investment in internal improvements in the highways or in bridges and tunnels and stuff. And I think that's a pretty easy thing to sell. Pretty easy, frankly, for the Democrats to pummel the Republicans on district by district, state by state. If I were an incumbent House Democrat, I would be just going to every you know bridge that's even if it's not being fixed yet, that's going to be fixed, every tunnel, every road in my district, and saying I voted, to, I got us some federal funds to help fix this. My Republican opponent would have judging from the actions of 95% of his party in the House and probably judging from what he's saying, would have voted against it. You want these things fixed? You vote for me. It's a very old-fashioned but pretty effective political message. 
But in a way, they're not saying it is my impression. I haven't seen much of it. And one reason they're they're not is we're right now we're back into a debate over this bigger social spending bill, which is much less, uh, which is more controversial, less obviously needed urgently. Incidentally, a lot of it's not even going to go into effect for two, three, four years. So we're sort of mired. The Democrats have just managed to handle this extremely badly, I've got to say, from a political point of view. And they're not going to get the benefits of the infrastructure bill that they had hoped for. If they pass BBB eventually in the Senate, some version of it, and then they conference it or the house takes it up and the, and finally passes it again and they get some final legislation they won't get the benefits they're hoping for so i think politically it means that biden has put a huge number of chips on legislation which isn't going to get him the kind of benefits he had hoped politically you know and i think friday was an illustration of how difficult this is because there's just so much noise out there now mm-hmm. it, it's not true as as one outlet said that that the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict had pushed the BBB, the the infa- what do you even call it? I hate calling it Build Back Better. What a I know, it's title. ridiculous. It is just the worst ever. If you're um, gonna have but, a cutesy but, name, at least give it a kind of cute, cute cutesy name. You know, yeah, I mean, this is exactly. kind of pathetic. You know? Any focus group in America would have come up with a better <laughs> slogan than that. But anyway, they, they, the one outlet said that the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict had shoved that, that out of out of the news, which is not literally true. I and mean, people tweeted out pictures of the front page of the New York Times and everything. But but the reality is, is that there is so much noise out there in the culture um, that it is hard to break through. It is hard to get people's attention. And I think Friday illustrated that. So sweet. Oh, and one, 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 one last comment on the substance. I mean, I agree with you. It, it's very much a mixed bag. There's some stuff that I think is going to be good. There's some stuff that's going to be ridiculous. Um, and of course, they relied on all of the gimmicks that have become too exhausting even to talk about, including the sunsetting, um, you know, uh, you know, making some of the programs temporary wink, wink, wink in order to make the number look smaller than it was. So, I mean, you, you play around with those numbers um, and it kind of creates a mess, but that's not a new thing on the political angle, though, the fact that Nancy Pelosi continues to pull this stuff off. I don't know. Do you know her well? I mean, I, I, I'm trying to figure out what her, how she does it. And, yeah, she, I, I know her very slightly. And, uh, you know, she's, I mean, I do think some of this is just being a real pro and, and working the house without seeking herself, obviously national office beyond being speaker and the first woman speaker. So a very important person in U S history, but still that gives her a kind of grounding in the house, paying attention to all of her colleagues. I mean, um, Mike Murphy told me this funny story, our friend Mike Murphy, the, uh, he got on a plane, this was pre COVID. So, you know, three years ago, pre pandemic. And, uh, uh, he was, I think maybe he even bumped up to first class, but uh, business class and, mm-hmm. and the speaker was on, this is going back and forth to California. Uh, and she was making phone calls to members and to donors till the moment they, you know, really made you mm-hmm. turn off the phones. And she has obviously perfected the art of speaking somewhat, you know, quietly into her uh, mm-hmm. cell phone so as not to have everyone around her here. So Mike, and, you know, Mike didn't hear the conversation, but it was clear that she, there were some members, there were some, seemed to be like some, some donors or influentials and just nonstop, you know, managing these 221 uh, cats that she's got to herd. Uh, in the in the house, I think uh, uh, it's a real inside game, which is a little different from the outside game that almost everyone else comes to Washington to, to right. be a performative uh, politician. And yeah, you know, one more thing, I just on the politics yeah, of this. Sure. Incidentally, on the on the building back better at all, 
COVID remains top of mind for Americans. I think with Thanksgiving and all that, there'll be a lot of, you know, gee, how are your kids doing at school? It's pretty good, but they have to take quarantine for 10 days. You know, there'll be a ton of those conversations. Shouldn't they spend these three days, literally Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, hammering away at the progress they've made on COVID, the progress they're going to continue to make, tell everyone to get the booster. We've made it available, 80,000 locations, totally free. We're really trying to make sure you can get it very, very fast. It really does help. You're already much better off if you're vaccinated. Uh, just ignore the ones who won't get vaccinated at this point. Biden can't really talk to them. But, you know, you're better off if you're vaccinated. Much, much, much less likely, thank God, to, to die or be seriously ill. But now with the booster, much, 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 much less likely. And your kids now can get vaccinated 5 to 11. Uh, we hope to get to the 2 to 5s, you know, in a month or two. Sort of a, a pretty upbeat but realistic COVID message. It seems to me that's what I would do for this three days. Instead, Biden, I think, is giving a speech on the economy tomorrow. Well, I mean, this is you have to choose these. I, I tend to agree. I think that at a certain point, they need to recognize where the country's at here, which is the country is kind of done with this. I mean, the fact that we're still debating mask mandates, I don't want to get into this now. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in favor of the vaccine mandates. Um, I, I think people are kind of done with some of the other stuff. Right. They they ought to be more upbeat about it. Like, you know, that there is the light at the end of the tunnel. A little bit of optimism would go a long way. I understand when he came in, he felt the need to sort of counter the happy talk of the Trump years by saying, okay, it's really dark. We're going to have a lot to, you know, to get through and everything. Now it's time, I think, to, to use the bully pulpit to, again, tout the successes, be more optimistic. On the economy also, I, this is this is also the dilemma because uh, you say that COVID should be top of mind. Well, the other one that needs to be top of mind is inflation. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I don't know how you're going to be selling universal pre-K. Yeah, um, when people are figuring out how, how do I pay for the turkey Thursday? How do I pay for my gas bill to drive to Ohio today? And so th- those are those immediate concerns right in front of you. And so those are twin. Now, maybe they're solvable because, the, the, you know, by next year, I think we will be past COVID. By next year, I think the economy will continue to be strong. But right now, what I think that really the country needs is a dose of optimism. And th- this is something that I'm, I'm not sure that they've they've mastered yet. Yeah, realistic optimism. Hope. I'd say on the, on the yeah, inflation. Realistic right, optimism, right. The message that would work on it work, or the message that would mitigate the damage on inflation would be, look, we see what's happening. It's it's tough. And this we had a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, and it has all kinds of weird effects afterwards as you come out of it. I think, you know, Biden can say, I think on the whole, we've done a pretty good job. We came out of it with less damage than we expected to the economy. I think that's true, and to employment and to uh, people's savings. Some of them are even higher, frankly. Uh, and you know we're gonna we're gonna get fully 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 back. But we have these things to overcome. We're very sensitive to it. We're working on it. You know we hear you and we we appreciate that we're at, people are are having to you know uh, uh, pay a little more here for, for, at least for many goods in the short term. I think what killed them of the last two three months. I picked this up a little bit here in Virginia in the gubernatorial campaign. It filtered down to the McAuliffe Yunkin level is they seem to be just poo-pooing inflation. You know, well, they really yeah, big mistake. I've, yeah. I've got a study here from some economist, and he says that really this is transitory and, and not even that real if you really factor in other things. And people just go to the supermarket or the gas station and say, well, wait a second. I mean, I know what I pay each week for the following goods, and they are 6%, 8%, in some cases 12 and 14% higher than they were a year ago. And if you tell me that they're not, or if you seem to just be minimizing that, Fine, if you're well off or even upper middle class, you don't 
look too carefully at the cost of the turkey or the cost of the, you know, stuffing. And it's, you know, whatever the bill is the bill, you pay it, your credit card. And, but if you're on a tight budget, it's real. And so I think showing some listening to the, that's the other kind of weird thing about the, the Biden White House seems pretty insular to me and the Democratic mm, Party yeah. sort of is. And are they listening to Americans? Yeah, you know, I was very struck. I, I tweeted this, I think. The head of the Democratic Congressional Committee said, "We're going to be selling our message. We're going to be telling what we have to say to a thousand and a thousand town halls." Yeah. I kind of feel like if I were a member of Congress, I'd sort of want to make my points, of course, about COVID and about the Republican extremism. But I'd be presenting myself as listening. Hey, what's going on? What you know? I'm I'm you're on a listening tour, not on a lecturing tour. But they seem like a party that likes to lecture a lot. Uh, I think that there's some truth to that. Now, I, I'm not an expert in monetary policy. I'm not going to pretend to be even even on a podcast. But <laughs> I, I, I do think that um, th- you saw a little bit of caution, um, a, sort of a recognition of let, let's not let's not stir up the the hive uh, when they announced earlier this morning that Jerome Powell is going to be nominated to another four year term as chairman of the Fed. Uh, I know that there have been some progressives who had been pushing another candidate. She's going to be now the, the vice chairman. My sense to that was, let's not roil the markets. L- let's not put any more question marks on where we're going on any of this right now. So that that's that seemed to sort of a let's let's stay the course as opposed to maybe making people more nervous. So relatively a positive development, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. One last question for you before you have to run. Sure. I, I'm I'm puzzled how this works. One of the problems the Biden administration has had is getting ambassadors uh, confirmed, and there are these diplomatic blocks in the Senate, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, blocking one ambassadorship, one appointment after after another. Why does the Senate let them do that? What, 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 why does Chuck Schumer allow these guys to hamstring the foreign policy of the president of the United States in this way? What, what am I not getting? Yeah, they just, they like having this privilege for themselves and feel that this is the price they have to pay. You have to, you have to universalize it so they can put a hold on someone yeah. they really so don't like. Any it. one senator can block this. Uh, I understand while, why they, you know. For a while, at least, yeah. Right. At least, I mean, they can override it eventually. I, I Generally speaking, this is a problem with the Senate, obviously, that we seem to have managed to get the worst of both worlds, a sort of a lot of gridlock and dysfunction and heightened partisanship, polarization, you know, performative <laughs> politics. No, and I think they do kind of go together in a weird, I mean, it seems like a paradox, but actually no. it makes sense when you think about it, of course. And um, so that the Senate is broken. I mean, of all the institutions in Washington, I would say Congress is the most broken, more than the executive branch, more than the judiciary. And I think it's contributed to the, it, I used to say, well, Congress is partisan and it's a problem. It's too much so and dysfunctional and broken and we have continued resolutions, mm-hmm. et cetera. But the country out there is relatively healthy. I do think, unfortunately, the partisanship is now, with Trump's encouragement, spun into broader polarization of the I actual right. population, not just of legislators, and that, and at the state and local level, the state legislatures, but then of actual people out there. And that's very that's why that's why it's such a dangerous moment. You can we can and, we're a big strong country. We can afford to have a somewhat dysfunctional Congress for a decade or two, but uh, not if the whole country becomes yeah, kind of yeah. crazed. Um, not if the entire electorate loses its mind and we become this symbol of decadence. Bill Crystal, hey, what an optimistic note to start off uh, the week. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, my I appreciate it, Charlie. And have a great Thanksgiving for you and your family. You too. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.